I'm Inez Stepman. I'm Ben Weingarten. I'm Emily Jashinsky. And I'm Josh Chen. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now for on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, as per usual, we have uh, a packed week a lineup for you. Um, first, we're going to kick it to Josh to talk about the impeachment inquiry into President Biden uh, that that Speaker of the House just announced. Um, then we're going to, to toss it over uh, to Ben to talk about Missouri v. Biden um, and the, the free speech case intertwining of, of uh, government and private censorship uh, that, that is really, uh, I think, not getting the coverage it needs to, what's coming out of this case uh, in, in the mainstream media for sure. Uh, then Emily is going to talk about the Tuberville holds and, and um, whether or not they are messing with military readiness as the media accuses them of doing. Uh, and then we're going to go around and, and perhaps do um, a segment on remembering 9-11. Um, this is, we're recording this on the day after the 22nd anniversary of 9-11. So we're going to be talking about that, reflecting on that uh, to, to close out the show. So with that, uh, let me kick it over to Josh to, to start us off here. All right. So this is breaking news at the time that we are recording this. I guess we'll be slightly less breaking, but nonetheless still quite timely by the time that you are listening or watching to it. So as of Tuesday morning at 11 a.m. or so Eastern time, Kevin McCarthy has had a formal press conference where he has announced that they are opening an impeachment inquiry. Now, um, you know, this is kind of lawyerly language. I, I guess we're just going to have to track in kind of the the days after this podcast is recorded, whether or not this means that the House Judiciary Committee is going to actually start formally drafting articles of impeachment. This is literally all kind of coming down just in the past hour or so. But in his in his, you know, fairly short, but but nonetheless, I, I thought compelling statement, Ken McCarthy basically says uh, two things. One is that the Department of Justice and the various other organs of, of the Biden administration have been, shall we say, less than forthcoming from uh, as but one of many examples that there are over 5000 emails that is alleged uh, that that Joe Biden sent when he was vice president using a pseudonym. Uh, the National Archives, to my knowledge, has not yet handed over those emails. So uh, lots of other kind of investigative Kind of tie-ups like that, and then the basic argument is that starting the impeachment process will will give the the House and House Republicans, of course, in particular, maximum investigative power. They they will be able to kind of fully utilize with, through the subpoena process and through just the various kind of nitty-gritty procedural rules that the impeachment process entails to actually try to suss out all of these various data points from all of kind of the the Chuck Grassley, McCullough Zlochevsky stuff on Brisma. There's a lot of kind of moving parts here to to this investigation, the, the the basic allegation, which we have covered on this show many times now, and it's worth restating, is is, is essentially one of corruption. I mean, it is it, it is is essentially that the president of the United States is corrupt, and as I have argued many times now, that corruption is is particularly relevant in, when it comes to some of these countries that the underlying corruption actually happened in. Whether it is Ukraine, where we are getting closer and closer to to, to the brink of a potentially catastrophic war with Russia, we certainly need to know whether our commander in chief is is compromised, is being bribed when it, in any way, whether his decision making process to the extent that a senile octogenarian who was saying crazy things halfway around the world in Hanoi can even be said to be kind of saying things, but we need to know whether his decision making process is actually 
implicated or, or, or is actually colored by by what his son has been up to and frankly, by what he has been up to. Again, that gets to the 5,000 emails. Some of these pseudonymous emails we've already seen um, in slightly redacted form from uh, Congressman Comer of Kentucky and things like that. And you know, if you want to go just back to the constitutional text here, so the impeachment clause of Article 2, Section 4 says, quote, the president and vice president and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. So again, we're putting the cart before the horse a little bit here. Like I said, this is kind of just the announcement of an impeachment inquiry. We have not seen articles of impeachment formally drafted or anything like that. Usually when it comes to presidential impeachment, it is that final criterion, other crimes and misdemeanors, which is kind of the, the catch-all provision that is usually gets what gets cited. Um, you have some kind of black letter lawyers like Alan Dershowitz who say that you actually need like a black letter criminal conviction in order to be convicted on those grounds. And in my view, that is totally, uh, totally outweighed by the overwhelming evidence. Hamilton in Federal 65 describes that as a more kind of fundamental kind of breach of the public trust. But here it seems to me like it is actually bribery, frankly, one of the actual enumerated criteria there in Article 2, Section 4 that could potentially serve as the basis there. Uh, I, obviously, the cynics among us would say that this kind of all amounts to political theater. I mean, even if McCarthy can, can muster up the votes to, to get this through the House with this very narrow uh, majority, which is an open question, unclear whether that would even happen. But even if he can do that, of course, it's, it's, it will immediately die in the Senate. I, I guess I'll, I'll end on this and then just throw it open for everyone's thoughts. I, I, I guess the politics of this, frankly, strike me as, as good for the, for the Republican Party. I, I don't see much in the way of downside to doing this. Um, especially as we enter into, into an election year. I mean, you know, I mean, who knows if some people in the base is a very bitter primary, Trump, DeSantis, the legal drama, the 91 criminal accounts, there's a lot of tension and kind of, you know, a mudslinging on the right. So if anything can kind of help unify and fire up the base, you know, I think in, impeaching Joe Biden is, is frankly a pretty good move in that respect. So I, I'm definitely a supporter of it for all those reasons, but I'm curious for all of your thoughts. I'll jump in quickly on the political question because uh, there were some people on the left trying to dunk on Chip Roy yesterday and saying he was Ted Cruz's chief of staff during, you know, the disastrous uh, 2014 government shutdown as though that was some sort of masterful slam on him. And uh, the congressman, you know, came back with and some of his defenders came back with, well, actually, uh, you know, th this was not unpopular in conservative districts of Texas. The, the Obamacare shutdown was not unpopular in conservative districts of Texas. And I think that's really important for uh, establishment Republicans to remember. I think this is definitely on Kevin McCarthy's mind. He is, whatever you think of the guy, he's good at politics. And uh, he, he knows very clearly what's happening in red districts. So when the national media and national public opinion takes the side of Democrats in a shutdown, takes the side of establishment Republicans in the shutdown, it is well worth remembering uh, a, that always happens. Republicans, even if Republicans had the most righteous cause in the world to shut down the government, uh, they will never, ever get credit for doing that. They will always get blame for obstruction, A, from voters who just don't like obstruction on a national level, and B, most importantly, because those voters are getting their information completely from the media, which is never going to support a Republican shutdown and is always going to give every single uh, reason to oppose it and to cast it, a, to cast it as extremism, obstructionism, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but in deep red districts, these guys don't have a choice. If they don't 
go for impeachment. Um, and, and with some legitimate means, I mean, Chip Roy, the border in and of itself for his constituents is good enough reason to uh, start an impeachment inquiry of, of Joe Biden here. Uh, look at Nancy Mace, who was on CNN today talking to Caitlin Collins and saying she supports the inquiry, not the vote yet, but the inquiry. Uh, this is a, a fairly moderate <laughs> woman from South Carolina. If she's reading the tea leaves um, in her district and, and going on CNN to defend an impeachment inquiry, that tells you where Republican voters are. So just when the national media um, and you know the members of the political class are condescending to uh, Republicans going forward, I think it's well worth keeping in line that this is a demand of their electorate at this point in time. So I'll talk briefly to the politics and then a little more about the merits. Um, on the politics, a couple points that I would make are, one, just as purely a matter of tit for tat, Donald Trump faced essentially the obstruction of the peaceful transfer of power with Russia Gates. Uh, which Democrats love to talk about with January 6th, but which really happened in terms of the sabotage and subversion of his presidency from before he was even elected. Then impeachment one, which, by the way, has a nexus to this impeachment inquiry, obviously, because it involved what the Biden family was doing in Ukraine. And of course, Donald Trump got impeached effectively for raising that issue. Uh, then impeachment two, and then, of course, four indictments. So we're talking about opening of an impeachment inquiry three years into a presidency versus that record. And so I think purely as a matter of tit for tat, you can obviously argue this is merited. And then I will also say, and you know, if you game this all out, obviously it could play out a number of ways. I'm sure there are some Democrats who think Republicans are going to overplay their hand. This is going to backfire on them, et cetera. Or they're going to say they're nothing burgers that come out of this. But I do think another aspect of this is to the extent this is really painful for Democrats and Republicans put the question to Democrats, do you defend the corruption and compromise and lying of this president and potentially, depending upon where the inquiry goes, also his abuse of other agencies of the federal government to cover up for him? That might not be a comfortable question for Democrats to be on record voting to defend. And consequently, I think this may offer an on-ramp that Democrats, an off-ramp rather, that Democrats actually want to jettison Joe Biden and replace him with whoever they want to serve as their figurehead going into the 2024 presidential election. Uh, on the merits, I would refer folks to an article that I wrote for the New York Post back at the end of July, laying out why on the merits, this is a, it's abundantly clear why an impeachment inquiry is more than needed, namely because we are talking about potentially, as Josh noted, bribery and or treason here not just the vague and broad high crimes and misdemeanors. Uh, an, F an, an informant for the FBI alleged a bribe. Obviously, as something the House Oversight Committee has noted in one of their memorandum, uh, one of their memos about the Biden family's international influence peddling scheme, a bribe can be taking a policy and receiving some kind of benefit via a family member. Uh, so by law itself, there may have been bribes that were initiated to the Biden family. But even broader than that, what could be a more grave threat to the Republic than that a commander in chief is corrupted and compromised by our worst adversaries, namely including communist China, but also as Josh noted, this also implicates Russia. There's obviously business so-called between the Biden family and Ukrainians, Kazakhs, Romanians and beyond. So this is obviously, this implicates essentially all of US national security and foreign policy. And what I'm fascinated to see in connection with an inquiry is to what extent can you link 
policies that then Vice President Biden supported and President Biden has supported today to benefits received by his family. What did Joe know? When did he know it? To what extent did he personally benefit directly or indirectly? And then last but not least, the cover-up aspect of this. To what extent have the DOJ and FBI and maybe other agencies been used to cover all of this up? And that gets to the weaponization and hyperpoliticization of the regime itself. So this impeachment inquiry, I believe if done properly, will go to major questions about the regime itself. And for that reason alone, it's more than merited. Yeah, just to, there's not, we don't have a lot of time left in this segment, but uh, just, just briefly, I mean, I think this is a smart move in part because they have to force uh, in some way the media to continue to cover this. This is a huge uh, scandal. It's a huge, it would be a huge scandal in a normal media environment. Um, but the more that uh, they can force coverage of this, uh, the better that is, especially I think because um, to the extent that and, and uh, that people you know already know how they feel about Donald Trump, um, the, the you know if anything the uh, the the charges against him um, and the indictments against him seem to have uh, reminded people that uh, the, the system is after him and and made him more popular, not less. Um, that being said, I mean I think a lot of people who voted for Biden or who are deciding between the two and voted for Biden uh, in 2020 did so on this premise of like. Oh, he's he's a return to normalcy, right? Um, and I, to that extent, I think these corruption charges actually are a political, an important political uh, tool again for the Republican Party against against Joe Biden. Um, and I think it's it's doubly important. I'll just wrap on this. Um, it's doubly important because uh, to keep the the media eye on this scandal because we know that at the end of this month, that Hunter plea deal or charges, whatever that ends up looking like, um, is going to come to an end and in a, the best possible way for both the DOJ and Hunter Biden, right? <laughs> Who's uh, and, and we know that that's going to be a corrupt deal. We know that that's going to be a, you know, and then the judge tossed out the previous one for that reason. But um, in any case, that, that will serve as a very convenient button point for a media not to cover this. Uh, and to say, well, this is all done. It's all about Hunter. There's nothing regarding Joe, right? Um, and so I think an impeachment inquiry will be uh, one way that Republicans can force some continuing coverage, uh, even if it's limited, of, of this scandal. And with that, I'm going to uh, kick it back over to Ben to talk about uh, Missouri versus Biden. Yeah, so as our viewers surely know, Missouri v. Biden, for background, is the landmark free speech case in the digital era where the plaintiffs, which include the states of Missouri and Louisiana, prominent doctors who were censored for COVID wrong think and uh, both health freedom activist groups and conservative media have all alleged that there was essentially a massive conspiracy between a whole raft of federal agencies plus the White House to collude and cajole and coerce ultimately in some cases the social media companies, sometimes alongside putatively private sector cutouts to censor and mass not just that COVIDian wrong think, but the Hunter Biden laptop story, questions of election integrity, and a growing number of issues. And the voluminous evidence that they've developed in just limited discovery on that case, I think, overwhelmingly shows uh, what the judge presiding over that case in Louisiana, Judge Terry Dowdy, declared in a bombshell July 4th ruling indicating the merits of their claims that this looks like the greatest censorship regime in the history of America. 
So in that July 4th ruling, Dowdy, again, indicated the plaintiffs were likely to win on the merits that essentially the government by proxy via the social media companies was violating the First Amendment rights of Americans. And he issued a preliminary injunction freezing the speech policing of the defendants, which ranged, of course, from the White House to the CDC, CISA, which has been described by the plaintiffs as the nerve center of federal government-led speech policing, and a whole raft of other agencies as well. Uh, as we discussed, I believe, in a previous podcast, the feds challenged this injunction and actually said it would do them irreparable harm, which is a legal term of art, for their speech policing to be frozen. And so this matter was taken up in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. And now the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, I believe on September 8th, issued an opinion. And what they found has left a lot of folks who believe in combating the censorship regime uh, with what they believe to be a, a massive victory. And I do think it is a partial massive victory with substantial qualifications here. And I'll go through kind of what the court ruled. What the court said was that the White House, the Surgeon General's office, the CDC and the FBI all did likely violate the First Amendment in coercing, colluding and cajoling social media companies to censor our speech and mass. And they concurred with what Judge Doty said and in essentially arguing that by leaning on the social media companies to censor, they, and I'm quoting here, rendered those decisions state actions. Um, and, you know, essentially they validated what all of us have been arguing, that when the government pushes social media companies to censor, it does so clearly with the threat of the full power of the federal government and that that behavior should be frozen. So the injunction should remain on them. However, the judges on, in the appeals court also ruled that NIAID, uh, and formerly Anthony Fauci led, the State Department and CISA were not subject to the injunction. Put simply, quoting from this opinion, there was not at this stage sufficient evidence to find that it was likely these groups coerced or significantly encouraged the platforms to censor. And to me, the omission of CISA here is by far the most glaring. Again, the plaintiffs in the case have said CISA is the nerve center of federal government-led censorship. We've talked about previously how it coordinated and facilitated both all of the various government agencies engaging in censorship activity. It forwarded a long censorship request to the social media companies. It helped originate, according to reporting, the private sector so-called cutouts to engage in censorship by proxy and beyond. So it was the pivotal, if not the pivotal player in federal government-led censorship. And so CISA being omitted, I think, is a massive loss. And I would argue calls into question the entire integrity of the injunction itself because the agency subject to it can simply effectively outsource to CISA. Last but not least, the judges also vacated almost every part of the 10-part ruling that Judge Dowdy issued, freezing the speech policing. So in other words, he laid out in great detail a whole list of activities that the feds were prohibited from engaging in towards censoring people via the social media companies. The judges eliminated all but one of the 10 planks Judge Dowdy laid out and essentially narrowed it to that the defendants, and remember only those defendants, cannot coerce or significantly encourage social media companies to remove, delete, suppress, or reduce content, including through altering their algorithms, posted social media content containing protected free speech. So narrowed substantially the injunction which the feds wanted, and also very importantly, 
eliminated one plank, which stopped the feds from colluding with those third party private sector cutouts that I talked about that CISA had coordinated with and arguably colluded with. And for all those reasons, I think, again, this is a win to the extent the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals has said, yes, the government did engage in this massive censorship regime, as Judge Doughty laid out, uh, that the Biden White House is implicated and a defendant in the case likely violated the First Amendment is massive. Same thing with the FBI, obviously. But the omissions here and then the narrowing of the injunction itself, I do not view as victories. The next question will be, do the feds ultimately appeal this up to the Supreme Court? What does the Supreme Court indicate? And then what are the implications going forward during the pendency of the actual case? All open questions. So with that, I open it up to anyone who wants to hack at any aspect of this ruling or what comes next. Yeah, I mean, just briefly, I, I think one of the most important things here, even with all the caveats um, that Ben just laid out, is that the legal system recognize uh, through the state action doctrine, which will probably have to be developed significantly. Um, it this is this may be that at least to my there's there's one case that is is kind of a dead end. I think in the 1950s, but. Uh, in our modern era, this is the first recognition of our legal system uh, of the structure of how the regime works. And this, I think, will go beyond just the social media companies and the free speech issue. Um, if courts are willing to recognize the structure of this kind of hand-in-glove routine uh, between agencies, um, government agencies and private companies in order to do end runs around what the government is restricted from doing uh, by constitutional law. Um, I think it will be a great victory for the right that that the legal system actually recognizes what's happening here rather than relying on a, a kind of paper idea of, of a very sharp distinction between public and private that just doesn't look like the world that we see anymore. So I agree with literally everything Inez said, and that's very much what I was going to say. So I will keep this really short and sweet. I, I, I defer to Ben entirely on on the kind of nitty gritty here, CISA, all of that. I don't think anyone in America has done more investigative journalism than Ben has on the entire censorship industrial regime, including his prolific columns at Newsweek. But I, I do want to zoom out a little bit here. To me, the big tech issue, which is something that I've really focused on over the past few years, is such an important issue for many reasons, one of which is it really is kind of the red pill issue for you to actually see the workings of the regime in its modern manifestation as it actually is. And many modern right liberals like to kind of talk about this kind of purported distinction between the public and the private sector and lots of kind of libertarian leaning law professors like to talk about how state action doctrine is very limited. This really is, I think, a, an important ruling for all those grounds. I think it's also worth noting this is a per curiam opinion. One of the three judges who signed on to this, which you, you might argue was kind of a, a, a not particularly libertarian opinion, again, because it takes a slightly broader view of state action. One of the judges was actually Judge Willett, who was one of the most overtly libertarian, really, of all the lower court judges in America. So if even the more libertarian-leaning judges of the Republican nominees are actually starting to see kind of modern state action doctrine for what it is, then I find that very encouraging. And, and this is the last thing I'll end on the kick of the Emily. You know, Phil Hamburger wrote in the Wall Street Journal, I, I, thought, I thought I found this totally compelling. He wrote this earlier this summer. If you look at the actual constitutional text, the First Amendment speaks of the government not, quote, abridging the freedom of speech, not just nuking it, abridging it. They, you know, these words are chosen very carefully, right? Abridge is a, is a term of art, and it strikes me as the unambiguously correct result. Uh, again, holding aside kind of the CISA nitty-gritty stuff. 
Yeah, all I'll say is if you want to feel good about the system, this is a, a case for you. Um, if you are inclined or, you know, sometimes like I am on my happier days to think perhaps we are in an adjustment period, uh, that our system is going to be able to sort of have the immune response and, and fight back in the ways that it has done before to uh, the excesses of government overreach, um, then this case is a good sign that, you know, there are jurists who will you know see these things for what it is even if you know it takes a way to wind, it takes a while to wind its way through the system and for the incentives uh the incentive system to reset um even even if that's the case and even if it shouldn't have to be the case uh you know that that our system will will kind of fight back and uh, come down on the the right side of these things and you know maybe the incentives and on a cultural level as in addition to the legal level will reset as well so if, if you need good news, here's some for you. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to toss it right back to Emily to uh, to talk about uh, her, her topic. But first, I want to make my X-Files joke because uh, with all these, <laughs> I wonder if the next release of uh, information from formerly Twitter, we will be calling the X-Files. Anyway, um, I'm going to toss it back to Emily uh, to talk about the Senate versus the uh, the DOD. Out of the kindness of my heart and as I am going to refrain <laughs> from making fun of you, I will, though, uh, start by talking about how Tommy Tuberville has <laughs> been putting a hold on Pentagon nominations, promotions since March. And this has garnered uh, the disgust, of course, of Democrats, of some establishment Republicans, um, but certainly of the media. Now, Senator Tuberville uh, from Alabama has been very willing to defend this, but in essence, what's happening is that after the Dobbs ruling came out, the Pentagon created a policy saying that uh, it would cover travel for abortions, uh, not the abortions themselves, as the media and the left is very insistent on pointing out, but travel for abortions. Um, and Tommy Tuberville said, I'm going to block every single nomination on the floor of the Senate uh, until this policy is changed. There are all kinds of like procedural back and forths happening. You know, Tuberville has a, himself introduced a bill. The left will say to, to change this. He's insisting they introduce a bill. Uh, but the bottom line here is that the Biden administration could change this policy any day. They could decide to change this stupid policy any day, but they're clinging hard to it because they think it's a political winner and because it's also a tell on how essential the issue is to them. Again, this is they are the ones like Tuberville is being blamed. This is something the media does all the time and that, you know, establishment Republicans will follow along with. Uh, the story is in the, the news again this week. I should say the news hook here is that uh, most recently, Michael McCall, a Republican, uh, told CNN that he disagreed with it, that he wished Tuberville would stop doing this. That's in addition to what uh, Mitch McConnell and some other establishment Republicans have said since Tuberville started this in March. This has affected uh, north of 200, I think it's closing in at 300 nominations. Um, and so you have some establishment Republicans really getting fed up. Uh, they were fed up with it you know, when it started. They're definitely getting fed up with it now. Tension are continuing to you know look like they're boiling over more and more and that's only going to get more and more heated and you're going to continue seeing like established republicans pit themselves against tuberville mike lee gave an impassioned fantastic 
uh, speech last week on how the blame here is on the Biden administration, squarely on the Biden administration. Democrats could, of course, um, get a bill, a bill voted on easily that would pass the House. Who knows if Biden would sign it, but they could take matters into their own hands if they didn't want to defend the stupid policy. But they are insistent on defending the stupid policy that the Pentagon pay for travels for abortions. That's what this is about at the end of the day. They could also vote individually on the nominations. Would that perhaps tie up the Senate? it um, and prevent it from doing other business. Sure. But again, all the more reason for the Biden administration to change the stupid policy. Uh, so even if they even if they didn't want to change the policy, they could vote individually on the nominations. They whine about the precedent that could set, et cetera, et cetera. But once again, uh, the bottom line is they could do any number of things, the most obvious of which is that Joe Biden could have the Pentagon change this policy. The Pentagon could change this policy itself, but for them, the policy is so worth it uh, that they are going to continue with this. They are the ones to blame, no matter what the media says. Let me kick it open to the group for that. So I wanna underscore the unanimous consent point because the media has done an absolutely horrific job, very predictably and not, you know, I, I mean, they're, they're doing it deliberately, obviously, but. All, all that Tommy Tuberville is doing is withholding his unanimous consent to approve the whole batch of dozens or hundreds of military nominees. If if the Senate Democrats and Chuck Schumer and all of them want to actually dedicate floor time to you know picking out specific kind of Secretary of the Marines or Secretary of the Army or all these various people who are increasingly taking to the Washington Post and regime-approved media to condemn Tuberville for, if they want to do these individual votes. These nominees would probably get 90 plus votes. In fact, Tommy Tuberville has explicitly said that he does not have a particular axe to grind with many of these nominees. Some of them for sure. I mean, you know, we all know Mark Milley and come the white rage stuff. I mean, that that mentality does percolate increasingly through our high ranking military brass. But if Schumer wanted to actually dedicate floor time, then then this wouldn't be an issue. So that in addition to the substantive question of, yeah, like why the heck is is the Pentagon? you know, paying for, for women to kill their unborn children or, or to travel to to do that. I, I mean, both of these things just make it, I, I think, an unambiguously wonderful decision by Tuberville. I was happy to see Mike Lee do that. But it's worth pointing out, you know, a lot of kind of, shall we say, jingoistic kind of, uh, you know, fervently pro-Pentagon uh, old school Republicans have been quite critical uh, of Tommy Tuberville here, the kind of folks who are always happy to just lavish the Pentagon with funding without any kind of accountability. Apparently, those fiscal conservative scruples magically fail to apply to the Pentagon for some of these kind of uh, uh, alleged conservative figures here. And I, I, I just find that totally misplaced. I mean, it, it's kind of like a do you know a time it is proxy to an extent, right? I mean, you know, maybe the Pentagon was was less woke and less riddled with all sorts of, of kind of structural maladies 20, 30 years ago. I'm not actually sure if it was, frankly, but you know, the current manifestation of it, you know, is definitely not worth blindly kind of just deferring to when it when it comes to everything. So I I also applaud Tommy Tuber Tommy Tuberville, and I I would condemn those who are condemning him in turn. Yeah, I mean, some of some of the the critiques about this are laughable, right? That uh, that if they don't put this policy in place, recruitment will suffer, and it's already suffering. Like as though the the, the main driving force, uh, you know, it, recruiting people to to into the U.S. military is uh, whether or not they provide, uh, you know, funds to travel across state lines to procure abortions. I mean, first of all, I would I would really 
if it were to help recruitment, I would really question who is going into the military um, based on some that that policy. Um, to be clear, my understanding is that the military doesn't, for example, pay for travel for people to go home for funerals or weddings, right? Service members to go home for funerals, weddings, like all kinds of things, um, very important, right? Uh, family things, even when they're given leave to do so. And here the military is making this massive carve out. I, I think zooming out, um, I, I agree to some extent with what Josh said about um, the, the era of of just assuming, uh, just like the era of assuming that the, that the DOJ, right, is operating uh, professionally, uh, institutionally, and, and not as a, a political weapon of one political party, right, uh, is over. Similarly, uh, the, the, you know, if it was ever wise to trust the top brass of the Pentagon, um, you know, we're not we're, we're going to turn to my segment of the uh, after this about 9-11 but it's not just the anniversary of the 9-11 attacks it's also of course the two-year anniversary of of uh the disastrous um execution of the withdrawal from afghanistan you know the, the idea that after something like that with no accountability that we should just um blindly defer to what top brass in the Pentagon says is quote unquote necessary for military readiness um I, I think is 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 a, is a laughable sort of uh, construction if if one has been looking at what what the top brass of our military has done not just in the last two years but like let's say in the last six years um and if not longer you know maybe maybe we were all naive before that but um certainly in the, in the last four to six years uh, if, if you're still deferring um reflexively to to the Pentagon on these matters you simply don't understand the lay of the land and to that point, given the great awakening that's happened at the Department of Defense, and this really started in earnest at, at minimum on President Obama, of course. Uh, but in response to that, I would say, I think we should have votes on the individual nominees. And I think the record should be scrutinized because would you trust a Joe Biden regime that effectively is squad-like in terms of all of its policies, would you trust that regime or a third term of Obama to be doing all these nominations and actually defending our national interest abroad? I certainly don't. So let's scrutinize more of the nominees. Uh, you know, more broadly, I think on this issue, I come back to a fundamental principle, which is why should we be funding assaults on our own rights or why should we be funding acts that we find to be abhorrent? And if you're a legislator, what is the point of having the, the oversight power, the legislative power, the power of the purse, if you're not ultimately going to use it? And this is one power, control over nominees, that senators should use. Now, obviously, it could lead to chaos to the extent, you know, this really was holding up, you know, something that was imperative to America. But again, that's the whole point of the legislative process. We hash this out via politics. And there's a political price to pay or there's political gain to be found. So, you know, kudos to Senator Tuberville for stepping up and using his political power in a way that he feels appropriate. Now, last but not least, it is telling here, of course, the establishment's reaction. I do think part of this is the reflexive sort of we're going to stand with whatever the line is coming out of the national security or defense apparatus. But the other aspect is it's so obvious that their animus for conservatives or conservative positions trumps their animus for the other side. And I just think it's it's a very telling aspect of the party and the establishment of the party, how much it loads the right wing over the opposition. And here, the criticism and the scorn should 
squarely be placed on the opposition for not rescinding a policy that violates the beliefs of the Republican base, of Republican voters across the country. Yeah, and, and with that, since we are recording this uh, on, on the 12th, the day after uh, 9-11, um, I, I wondered if I might lead uh, a discussion here that was perhaps a little less structured on this and ask everyone to to weigh in on their thoughts about this anniversary. Um, to to me, uh, it, it really does seem, and actually I was listening to Emily on Federalist Radio Hour with some of her younger colleagues, right? Uh, there, there is actually a, a big divide between people somewhere around, you know, 30, 32, right? And then uh, people who are younger than that, who don't really remember 9-11 uh, directly, or if they have memories, they're very, they're very hazy and sort of uh, pre-understanding sort of memories. Uh, but for those of us who are you know, in the the higher grades of elementary school through middle school, high school, right, and the, and of course beyond, um, we remember this very clearly as a, a sort of life, um, pivotal life event uh, for for each of us. Um, so it, it struck me that actually, um, in, in Emily's interviews of of those younger folks, that they are extremely uh, like their legacy of nine eleven um, is very much the failures that came after. Uh, and, and that, that really struck me, right. Because, uh, and there's much made about like sort of the unity after nine 11. And I, I believe people when they say they felt that, uh, in Palo Alto, we did not have that. Um, we immediately, uh, went the, the, the left immediately went to the, the normal hobby horses of, you know, racism and hating Republicans, uh, the day after an attack on, on American soil. Um, but, you know, I, I think many people do remember it as this, this unifying, uh, time, in in recent American history, uh, where where people did lay aside politics, certainly George W. Bush's approval rating was through the roof. Um, and by the way, as an aside, it struck me uh, that watching, as I always do, uh, rewatching the clips of of the the speech at Ground Zero and and other news clips from nine eleven, uh, that he he looks quite young and vigorous, uh, the president, right? And and it it made me think about you know whether any of, of our octogenarian leadership would be capable of making that kind of bullhorn speech today and making it sound actually, you know, intimidating um, just just merely because of their age. But uh, it, it really does seem like looking back uh, 22 years later that there were, that, that sort of the aftermath of 9-11 has now left such a bad taste both domestically and, and abroad um, for Americans that for people who don't have that very visceral and real memory of being under attack, uh, it's rather a badge of cynicism um, at, or a remembrance of a kind of cynicism, um, a, a sort of condemnation of people who uh, naively took certain actions after. So uh, the, the biggest of which I think is the inauguration of the real surveillance state that's now being turned against Americans. Um so I don't know that those were my more depressing, uh, even more depressing than usual uh, sort of recollections or, or thoughts uh, on 9-11. I, I do try to go down to the, the memorial um, every year or something that I guess Joe Biden couldn't be bothered to do this year. And perhaps there's there's something there to comment on. Um, but with that, I'll, I'll just kick it out to the rest of you. What are your reflections on this anniversary? Um, whether that's about, again, um, the, the attack on 9-11, the aftermath of it. And then even I would throw into this, you know, uh, two years later, the the Kabul um, 
withdrawal, which did seem to like, again, in keeping with themes of the sort of disillusionment uh, after 9-11, right? We close 20 years after this attack. I'm clearly Joe Biden hoped to close an era in American history by withdrawing troops from Afghanistan successfully. Like, obviously, he hoped to do that to announce the end of this war. Um, well, you know, it, it just seems to, to pile on the hopelessness of it, right? Like the the, the same people are now in charge in Afghanistan uh, as, as when we went there. Uh, the, the richest country in the world was unable even to affect a kind of orderly withdrawal that didn't put our, our troops and our allies there in harm's way. Um, and, and I, th I think that actually is kind of emblematic of how a lot of Americans now, uh, think of the last 22 years, uh, with regard to the decisions that this country made after 9-11, it really does seem to be a turning point in certain way. So, uh, with that, I'll let, I'll let the rest of the of you guys weigh in what you were thinking about yesterday on, on this 22nd anniversary of the attack. I, can, I mean, I think back, uh, go, go ahead. ahead, Josh, go ahead. I mean, I think back always to like where I was on that day. I mean, like it's one, I mean, for probably all four of us, and I would imagine most of the audience, it's one of those days that you just simply do not forget. I mean, I can literally, I, I can envision the exact chair of the classroom that I was sitting in, in seventh grade science class, you know, like when the principal went on the loudspeaker to announce what had happened. And even for me, that loudspeaker announcement didn't suffice. I mean, like you have to see the footage. I mean, how can you possibly describe what had transpired? And I was in the New York suburb, so this is only 25 miles away or so. And, you know, for me, I mean, I grew up in a suburb north of New York City, basically right on the Hudson River. So you, you could actually see the smoke from the towers on the Hudson River and like, that moment for me was like, I mean, that was it. I mean, like that was my, that was my moment. That, that, that's when I started following current events. It's when I started kind of developing opinions. I mean, when you have that kind of viscerally jarring, shocking, kind of unambiguous kind of evil, um, you know, you're already a, basically a conservative, you know, when you realize that humanity is not necessarily like 1960s hippie kumbaya good, but there is really good, that there is really evil, that man is, is perhaps naturally inclined towards evil as the Bible teaches and that we need restrictions in place to kind of guide our, guide our lives. I mean, you can quickly see how that kind of puts you on, on a journey, which is the journey that I have taken over the past 20 years or so. But, I, you know, one thing that's just shocking to me is like, I, I, because that moment was so seminal in my life, um, I, I think about like, I, do, do the kids today like understand that? I mean, I sound like a, like a, like a grumpy old man. I mean, 18 year olds, you know, graduated high school like a few years ago, not even being alive on 9-11. People graduate college this spring, this May in 2024 probably not even being alive on 9-11. I mean, I mean, that is just so shocking to me. And, you know, maybe the silver lining of that is that, as Inez correctly points out, you know, Sean Davis had a really good tweet on this on 9-11. You know, it, it really did usher in a lot of bad. I mean, both kind of the domestic intelligence apparatus and also kind of the neoconservative boondoggles to try to spread Madisonian democracy to third world Islamist backwaters. So maybe there's a silver line that, like, that the kids weren't alive is actually not a terrible thing. Um, but I, I guess I'll just end with a quick kind of substantive policy takeaway. The one thing that I think way too few across the entire political spectrum understand, uh, Charlie Kirk, to his great credit, had a tweet pointing this out. To me, immigration, excuse me, to me, 9-11 really was above all an immigration failure. I mean, the people who committed these crimes were here on visas. They never should have had those visas. Um, and, and the 9-11 commission, to its credit, did make a did make a point of saying that, but I think Republicans and Democrats both chose to kind of take the Bush approach really for many years and we fight them there so that we don't have to fight them here. You know, frankly, if we just kind of tightened up the borders and the vetting and the visa process, we wouldn't need to try to go spread democracy to the hills of Afghanistan.
and I was going to add some color actually. Um, and as I'm, I'm so glad you listened to that podcast. It was a, I was really, uh, struck by the conversation that I had with some of the younger federalist staffers, none of whom, um, remember 9-11. I think most of them weren't actually born on 9-11. The level of cynicism they have is so different, I think, than people who who do remember 9-11. And, you know, maybe that is, is morphing into an even deeper cynicism on our part. Um, but having seen uh, the, the U.S. government before 9-11, and especially in those years between the Cold War and 9-11 that many of us grew up in that were formative for us, uh, those were pretty good years for the United States of America. And, and having seen what the government and the American people are capable of um, and then seeing it thrown away, yes, maybe that that is morphing into a deeper cynicism on, on our behalf, but also it means that there's a, a level of possibility that we have a hope that those people don't. Um, that that when you grew up seeing things like generally work, not be perfect, but generally working um, in the 80s and in the 90s and, you know, the, the year 2000, it's just different for us because, um, you know, we, we've seen things function and in a way that that's very different than the years after. I think one of them said, you know, I, I'm much more worried about being attacked by my own government than a foreign government at this point. One of the younger staffers said that uh, and it was just it was strange to me. Um, but I, I also interviewed for today's episode of Federalist Radio, a, a former special agent at the FBI named Thomas Baker, who has a new book out on the fall of the FBI. Um, and we were talking about how the Cold War was this huge stress test of the American system. And it culminated in the church committee hearings and reforms like FISA. FISA was then abused um, in the years after 9-11 was reformed itself in the years after 9-11 and abused by the Obama administration and subsequent administrations uh, to spy on political opponents. And uh, this is the post 9-11 era is a stress test of the system. And that's a, a helpful way to look at it, or I mean, a hopeful way to look at it, similar to the other topic we were discussing, Missouri versus Biden, in that we can still come out on the right side of that stress test, even if we haven't so far. Um, you know, it may, it may have felt helpless in the 60s and the 70s as some uh, revelations about J. Edgar Hoover and, and Alan Dulles were coming out. Uh, but now, uh, if it does feel hopeful, hopeless and, and maybe, you know, we'll, we'll get some uh, reform out of it, but it doesn't feel like it right now. It feels like we're failing the stress test. And that's what Sean's piece that uh, Ben referenced, uh, that, that Josh referenced, that he, he published in The Federalist yesterday really came down on the side of, that we've, we've failed the, fest the t this stress test. We're 20 plus years in. Um, so it, it's a, you know, the, the, the kind of two different sides of the cynicism, uh, the cynicism of, of never having lived in a country that uh, is the one that we grew up in. Um, depresses me almost more than the, the cynicism of, of having something and losing it, because at least you have uh, a standard to return to um, in your mind and, you know, going forward, uh, horrible either way. I think those points are well taken. And uh, I was moved by Sean Davis's piece as well and his uh, associated tweet. Um, you know, I would echo kind of at its highest level, the most poignant aspects of this in terms of the reflecting 22 years on is uh, one of my concerns is that I think, you know, we talk about never forget. I do think there is forgetfulness. Um, this was a day for every one of us who lived through it. And, you know, we were all kids at the time. I was in eighth grade at the time, 40 minutes from lower Manhattan. Um, 
I wrote a personal remembrance and then kind of a reflection for the Federalist a couple of years ago, just because I wanted to put pen to paper. So I had it fresh, as fresh as you can be 20 years on uh, one's thoughts. But when your loved one, when your mother or father comes home covered in soot, ash, detritus, and God knows what else, hours after those events transpired, that moves you in a way that someone who was not born or was not sentient at the time uh, can never fully be moved by, I think, in an equivalent way. Uh, I will say the thought occurred to me uh, yesterday on September 11th, you know, when do you expose your own kids to this and how do you expose them to it? And what are you going to tell them about that day? And what followed are all really important and difficult questions, especially because we know the people who are writing the history are going to subscribe to the same view of, you know, America is the aggressor and we're evil and this was paying for our sins probably and, and God knows what else. What, what will the 1619 Project version of 9-11 look like? Um, unfortunately, we're probably going to all live through that uh, in the next 25 years. Um, but, you know, to me, I think the most the poignant and painful takeaway is among them, 22 years on this national security apparatus that putatively was aimed at jihadists and then stopped even referring to them as jihadists. And you know, we came up with this euphemistic name, by the way, of global war on terror. Terror is a tactic. What is a global war on terror? When you engage in a war, you have an enemy. We wouldn't even name the enemy in the name of the engagement because we didn't want to offend people and violate. And from the very beginning, therefore, you knew that it was going to be a flawed exercise, what we did in the world. But 22 years on, that entire apparatus has been turned against Americans and patriotic conservative Americans as the enemy par excellence. And I'm not sure that there's any more depressing takeaway than that. But you can talk about the fact that, you know, the the notion of like the terrorists want, did the terrorists win or not? Well, are we poorer today, you know, by the by the measure of the massive debts that we have accrued and accumulated? Certainly so. Are we weaker? Yes, we are not necessarily the dominant preeminent world power. And while we engaged in what turned out to be farcical missions largely in the Middle East, of course, China bided its time and grew bigger and stronger and watched us and observed us as we operated and then took advantage after we left Afghanistan in shambles, for example. Uh, and then are we more tyrannical? Are we less free than we were? Absolutely so. I mean, and I've I've done this thought exercise before about Think about all the things that are now routine in our daily lives that would not have existed had 9-11 never happened. And there are any number of them. Uh, obviously, of course, when, starting with going to an airport or the security all around us in our society. And yet, to Josh's point, fundamentally, what was the failure of 9-11? The you know, direct failure? It was immigration. And we never sealed the borders after that. In fact, mass immigration from Muslim countries, Muslim-majority countries, has been an imperative. And, you know, that that's just a fact. And obviously, jihadists come from Muslim majority countries. So the policy completely flies in the face of what the failure was subsequent to that date. And of course, you know, now we can talk about, you know, to what extent did the government uh, engage in, you know, essentially trying to incite attacks and use that to justify its growth of power. And you know, we can run through all of that, the horrors associated with that. We can talk about uh, the cover ups with respect to uh, Saudi Arabia and what people in the what the feds knew and when they knew it and what the CIA was doing around 9-11 uh, with respect to some of the jihadists that came to our shores. 
to me, and, and I think this is reflected probably in our discourse today and in the cynicism that prevails over everything now, which did not necessarily exist, uh, certainly in my mind as a kid at 9-11, uh, that day represented the collective loss of our national innocence. And maybe for prior generations, you know, that would have been the assassinations of you know, JFK and Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, maybe it would have been Pearl Harbor in a World War II generation. Uh, but for me, that's the main takeaway. 9-11 was the loss. Well, it's one of the main takeaways. It was the loss of our national in innocence, a recognition that we were vulnerable in a way that I don't think any of us could have fathomed that there was substantial evil in this world and that we would have to face off against it and that the America that we knew was never going to be the same subsequent to that day. And I, it's hard to point to any positives that have resulted in the subsequent two decades. And to that extent, you know, the jihadists did really prevail to the extent they wanted to more than knock us down a peg. Uh, but we also did much of it to ourselves. And that's maybe the most depressing aspect of all is that me so many of these wounds are self-inflicted. It did not have to be this way, uh, but our betters led us down this path and it's led to you know, a whole raft of catastrophes for this country. So I see very little good that can be taken in it. The best that you can say is that we did see some Americans who represented the best of America that day. And obviously, and I think the unity they clearly, you know, certainly was felt in the New York area subsequent to that time, but the heroism of everyday Americans during that attack. Uh, those were great Americans. And the saddest thing for me is that their sacrifices have not been honored in the subsequent two decades. Yeah, uh, with that, I, maybe I'll, I'll connect this to my final thoughts. Um, you know, both Josh and Ben have mentioned the immigration aspect of this uh, tra tra transition to immigration matters today. My final thought is uh, that it, it is exceedingly clear that sending migrants to blue states and blue cities is not just a political trick, but a, a very important uh, revelatory um, political tactic that has worked better than pretty much any of our immigration debates over the course of the last couple decades. Um, and I mean, we see it, it's just different. The The consequences of open, open borders on, uh, on West 71st um, is is what has changed it's just changed the, the conversation in new york around immigration from you know empty virtue signaling to a real discussion of what the trade-offs are um and and of course it's massively uh hypocritical and and it i guess it's less hypocritical than it once was but it like it just you know there's no acknowledgement of the hypo past hypocrisy obviously uh border states border cities uh, have been dealing with a much higher level of, of consequence from our open borders, effectively open borders, um, and have been for decades. And the response of New York liberals uh, has has always been, well, they're, they're a bunch of backwards racists. Uh, but but yeah, I mean, there there was a lot of talk in in the in the media and even among people on the right saying like, oh, is this a is this a stunt, right? But by uh, DeSantis and Abbott, uh, is this a stunt? And I think it's pretty clear that it 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 may have been a stunt, but it's the most effective. Uh, shift in the conversation around immigration that's happened in decades that that I can remember. Um, and then just uh, an unrelated point, um, just pointing folks to the free beacon, Aaron Sibarium has, I think, a, a piece that's easy to overlook, but um, really important uh, about five top law firms that are currently operating what uh, are likely illegal diversity programs. Um, I think th there will be lawsuits um, coming their way about in, in the wake of the Supreme Court declaring that 
the way to cease discriminating on the basis of race is in fact to cease discriminating on the basis of race. Um, I, I think these these things are one of the things that has been the white pill um, in, in recent uh, months for me has been to see the private sector, uh, see that that CYA barrier um, in terms of getting sued flip from quote unquote pro, you know, diversity, social justice, these kinds of programs, affirmative action in the private sector, forgetting for a moment, the universities are going to fight it. But in the private sector, to see that cover your ass barrier flip the opposite direction to the point where there are a lot of, of major corporations and law firms that are now afraid to discriminate uh, as they have been for, for uh, many years now, discriminate primarily against white and Asian men. Um, they are uh, reconsidering doing that. Of course, there are these these holdouts um, and how these lawsuits proceed will tell us a lot about what the vulnerabilities of private companies are in, in this this new SCOTUS world. Uh, but but overall, I think it's been surprisingly white-pilled uh, how, how much effect this ruling has had and what the ripple effects have been in the private sector versus the university, the, the explicit boundaries of, of what this decision has been with regard to university admission policies. I, I mean, I don't have necessarily uh, a, a a specific final thought today, so I thought I would go in a totally different direction, actually, um, which is that uh, this Friday evening starts the Jewish festival of Rosh Hashanah, which is a uh, the Jewish New Year. Um, it's actually the the only two day festival in the U.S. It's actually also a two day festival in the land of Israel, kind of thus signifying its significance and more generally speaking the month leading up to Rosh Hashanah which in the, on the Hebrew calendar is the month of Elul then then going into the the 10 most important days of the year the days of four or the days between excuse me Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur this is kind of the time of repentance the Hebrew word for that being teshuva so um the, the, there are prayers that are added to the Jewish liturgy slicho prayers uh, our, our Sephardic friends uh, including this very Sephardic family that I am marrying into later this year uh, they started praying slicho actually starting on the first day of Elul so a few weeks ago the Ashkenazim started uh this just this past weekend one week before Rosh Hashanah and um, these are prayers of repentance. So it's kind of built into, into the liturgy. And then there are kind of additional prayers of repentance between the 10 days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And then on the obviously Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year is, is all about repentance. So I, I, I say all that because um, I, I want to kind of tie it back to uh, American politics, actually. I think that there's this mentality that I've noticed um, on parts of kind of the very online right, the very kind of pugilistic right, uh, not just the right, definitely some parts of the left as well, that, you know, it's, it is somehow less manly to apologize, you know, never apologize, right? Never admit to your to your friends, to your enemies, to anyone that, that you were somehow wrong. And I, I have always been a big proponent, actually, of apologizing when you have actually erred and and actually asking for forgiveness, which, um, according to Halakha, Jewish law, is what we are actually required to do uh, for those that we have wronged in our personal capacity in, in the lead up to, to Yom Kippur. So, so Yom Kippur is actually atoning for your sins before Hashem, before God. But in order to atone for your sins to other human beings, you have to kind of personally seek forgiveness. So... I find this whole kind of mentality in the political arena of just never apologizing, never asking for forgiveness, you know, never kind of bow an inch. Um, I think that it is toxic. I think that it is inhumane. And I, I would very much like to see some of our more 
you know, our colleagues, I, I really have no one in particular minds here, to be clear. I'm speaking in very broad brush terms, but I, I would very much like to see this mentality kind of dissipate. And I, and I would like to think that there is something to be learned, really, for kind of everyone engaged in the political fight from this from this month this really this month plus long process of teshuva and seeking repentance and asking for forgiveness. It's okay, Josh. We know you were talking about Inez. Um, <laughs> fair enough. But uh, you know, I'll I'll follow up on that by saying, I remember uh, getting training when I was first starting out um, from somebody who I respect and, and knows their stuff really well. Uh, but basically saying, you know, when you're you're on media, uh, you don't ever want to say that you don't know something. Uh, and I think actually the incentive system in media really is switching to, you know, having authentic, more authentic conversations, whether it's podcast spaces like this one, YouTube spaces, Rumble, wherever it is, where uh, people who are engaged in journalism or commentary uh, are rewarded for being honest when, you know, they need to apologize and when they need to say they're wrong. Uh, that doesn't mean the old gatekeepers who never, ever do any of that whatsoever, if you confronted them with a fact about, let's say, Tommy Tuberville, uh, they would never concede to being wrong about something, especially not on air. Uh, maybe they'd do it over drinks or something, but they would especially not do it on air. Um, I think those incentives are changing. And, uh, you know, that, that isn't to say those people aren't still incredibly powerful and bad, um, because both of those things are true. But there is good news. Uh, you know, if, if you can squint to find good news in Missouri v. Biden, if you can squint to find good news in the immigration story, as Inez highlighted just now, and as we discussed last week, if you can squint to find good news and that you know people are fighting uh, back, the system is in some ways fighting back against the abuses of the FBI and the CIA, these do feel like uphill battles. They feel Sisyphean. They may prove to be losing battles, uh, but there is good news in, in all of them um, if we are inclined to maybe camp out for a moment and look around and uh, appreciate that for what it is. So uh, on that note, I'll kick it back to Inez to close us out and maybe to apologize finally for everything she's done wrong. <laughs> I was going to say, of course, the Christian leaves us with thoughts of good news. Yes. Uh, amongst the, <laughs> amongst the Jews. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, all right, I have well, even more on... good news if you guys want to hear it. <laughs> Uh, as Ann Coulter said, she just wants to perfect the Jews, right? Yeah, uh, I remember that. Anybody remember that? That's like one of the yeah, first cancellation attempts. Well, Donnie, that- I, I, I remember it very well. I remember that Ben Shapiro, to his credit, immediately came to Ann's defense on that. Yeah, um, it was not offensive at all. Um, anyway, I did not say that. <laughs> on on uh, on on that appropriately uh, Judeo-Christian note, uh, um, thank you for for tuning in on behalf of Josh, Ben, and Emily. Uh, thanks for listening to us this week and all those other weeks. I'm Inez Stepman, and I'll see you at the next NatCon Squad.